Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. October. October. Somehow it's October. Here we are on the mocking cast, ready to talk about it. What is uh what has October brought so far for the two of you? Um, did you guys know that Hobby Lobby is no longer selling Halloween stuff? What? Are you yes. serious? Totally serious. Sat- my, satanic panic. I, I don't know. My friend went in to like buy some. This is the great irony to buy some little Halloween bags to do like treats for underprivileged kids in Houston. And they were like, we don't sell Halloween bags anymore. And I was like, did you ask them like other questions about their lives? <laughs> She's like, no. So that's all. That's my news that's fit to print. Do not go to Hobby Lobby if you need Halloween decorations. They no longer sell this. There's not PSA a Hobby Lobby from Sarah. In, within miles. <laughs> Head straight over to Joanne's. I'm just here for the mom <laughs> energy. Yeah, I can tell all the mom tips. You can't get your Halloween decor there anymore. Target saw, is still your chapel. I saw some meme of like a like an abandoned storefront that's like it says August thirtieth, you know, two thousand twenty. It's like completely abandoned. There's like tumbleweeds going, and then like September first, it's got it's like Halloween superstore. You know, <laughs> there's Halloween everywhere. Just like somehow magically on that yes. moment on uh, September first, these Halloween superstores pop up in abandoned spots. I mean, people are hungry for like. The- the next like thing to celebrate for sure like i'm seeing so much more like blow up halloween you know the like inflatables like w- people don't typically do a lot of those where we live and mm. um and because they're tacky but i mean we've always had one but but i'm seeing a lot more of them because i mm. feel like you know everybody's just looking for some fun i'm in favor i'm in favor yeah. What about you, something Arch? you can do on your own property without, you know, having to to go anywhere. Something or make a safe. grand inflatable political statement and piss people off. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah, like everyone can agree on a How many giant more days till the election? black cat with a jack o' lantern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the last Except thing for left we can agree on. Except for Hobby Lobby, Except for but Hobby like Lobby. everyone else. Yeah. Just rebranded as a harvest thing with lots of pump- pumpkins. Right, come on. Like, we've been still, doing this forever. As so Christians. take it to we the bank. Take it, move it around, shake it up, give it back. Gosh. Well, what about you, Rucker? I'm doing, I, I sort of can't believe it's October. It's very strange. It's like somehow it, it's the year which never ends, and yet time, I don't know. Time is such a weird thing right now. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. I'm still waiting for fall to kind of arrive in South Florida. Apparently, the dry season arrives October 15th. I'm looking forward to that, to be it not being super hot and humid outside. But uh, but generally speaking, we're 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 good. We had, my my wife's birthday was yesterday, and that was um, that was a fun uh, little celebration. And uh, we're doing okay. My my oldest son is coming home from college this weekend for the first time since we dropped him off a couple months ago. Just wanted to come home for the long weekend to say hey. So looking forward to seeing him. I know Marshall is going to freak out our four year old because you know Jackson is as a god in his eyes. So should be should you be a have fun to weekend. video that RJ. We yes. will. We totally will. I'm like will. desperate yeah. to see that. That's so yeah. sweet. We'll probably take him to the airport or something. He won't know oh. where we're going, and then he'll, he'll just lose his mind. Yeah. 
So it's Jackie. like so time time is time is a flat circle in uh, in Florida land these days. Yes. It, although you know we're we're actually we're going to reopen pretty soon here. We're going to re- regather for worship. We've been worshiping outside for yeah. like a month or so, which has been good, but now I think we're actually going to be back in the church in a few weeks, which is going to mm. be good but also strange like no singing social distancing everyone masked up i'm debating whether to wear a transparent mask which looks really creepy or to wear a regular mask right. which also looks creepy yeah so, yeah <laughs> but pe- people are Two sort of options. used to it like when we were told we couldn't you know open for worship without like a 50 different like you know precautions at time is like no that sounds terrible and now it's like well you do that to go into you know best buy so that's right you know, that's right that's it's like i guess i guess it's less weird though it's still i mean there are rumblings here of that. I mean, in, in my world, the big thing that's happened is Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van oh, Halen died I yesterday. Did. I mean, it's uh, the very the the most recent episode of the Well of Sound, or at least the last one of our previous season, was all about Van Halen. So I've I spent about two months completely immersed in this man's life work, and he's a he's a conundrum. He's a very f- fascinating figure, and it's just it's just sad. It's sad to, to me. Mm. I, I'm sorry, uh, Dave. He, uh, you know, so if, if you're out there, put on eruption and just go wild and uh, think of me <laughs> with a tear I definitely in your watched eye. his 13-minute his European guitar solo on YouTube last night, which was just like crazy. It's just you, so crazy. Well, he's, like, he's, like a, he's a modern-day Bach, basically. Well, you know, what people don't guitar. realize about him is that not only could he, did, did he sort of pioneer these playing techniques, which, but he, he actually was sort of a technical you know, innovator. He 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 kind of rebuilt the electric guitar. Actually, the the electronics of it and the and all of the the amplifier technology. He just sort of had a preternatural understanding of this stuff in a very weird way that completely shaped everything that we hear on the radio. But no one really knows that uh, in the way that. Anyway, <laughs> lecture over. <laughs> That's my almost say, famous moment. Really, of the year. thank you, again. Dad. Thanks, Dad. That was good. <laughs> I loved thank it. You, it was good. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember there was like Billie Eilish was interviewed somewhat recently and like it turned out she had never heard of Van Halen and yeah. and all the dads, all the dads worldwide, at least the, the white dads were like, what? This is a travesty. <laughs> and I was thinking like how, you know, Van Halen is not aged particularly well. People don't really think about them. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, David Lee Roth is this sort of gaping hole in the 80s. <laughs> world we kind of evolved right made a decision to to forget about that guy so um anyway uh we're gonna go from that which is kind of only semi-serious into something else that feels a little um like a lot of intellectual energy expended on something that doesn't always feel like it's worth it and yet and yet this article by Sam Anderson that appeared in the New York Times magazine. Sam Anderson is the is rapidly becoming one of my favorite writers out there. He's the one who wrote the profile of uh, Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, nice. That, that we, we talked about. And he wrote a book called Boomtown. And basically look for his byline. He's fascinating. But he wrote an article, a long one, called What I Learned Inside the NBA Bubble. And of course, I thought of RJ uh, when we read this, but it, get, it gets there. He lost last night. Depressing. Depressing. But continue. It gets there. So he writes this. He says, in my life, basketball has always been a deep emotional refuge. When I feel sad or agitated or morally conflicted, I can go shoot 100 free throws to calm myself down. The game is one of the purest forms of meditation I know. And basketball is not simply a game. It is a nearly mystical blend of individual and collective excellence, one of America's great cultural innovations. 
speaking of being in Disney World where, you know, the, the play is going on, he said, he said, the level of play was amazingly high. This was one of the bubble's great unexpected gifts. Somehow all this isolation and weirdness combined to produce a highly concentrated form of basketball, a pure shot of beauty and exuberance in a nation starved for exactly those things. But this is sort of the ending part where it gets really into our sort of territory. He said, for four particularly intense games in the bubble, so he, he was sent down there by the Times, figuring that the bubble, this bubble that they've created for NBA players would completely collapse and it wouldn't work at all, and they, he, they wanted to have someone on the ground to cover that. But it, it has worked, and uh, sort of against all odds. So he says, before particularly intense games in the bubble, I would text my wife about my deepest fears. What if Damian Lillard couldn't maintain his superhuman scoring? What if I woke up tomorrow with no more Blazers games to look forward to? He's from Oregon. After one flurry of this, there was a long pause. I could see that she was typing something. Do you feel weird caring so much uh, when there are so many more important things to care about, she wrote. (laughs) (laughs) She said, even in my panic sweat, I recognize this is an excellent question. It was, in a way, the crucial question of the bubble and maybe even of America writ large. Does basketball matter? Does entertainment matter? In a world where governments are rotting from the inside out, where people are gasping for breath, why would we spend any resources on games, distractions, theater? What did it mean that our country's most visible model of health and normalcy and logistical competence were coming from a professional sports league? Well, yes, I responded. I did feel weird. Part of me sees basketball as embarrassingly adolescent, a costly distraction, exhibit A for the way societies prioritize exactly the wrong things. The hours of attention I pour every month into sports could be poured into activism, outreach, gardening, exercise, calling my congresspeople. Another part of me, though, is not embarrassed at all. Sports, at its best, answers a deep human need. We are ravenous for meaning. We want to know that what we do matters, because Lord knows there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. Play is a bubble inside of which meaning is undisputed. It doesn't matter that the bubble's borders are arbitrary, that our games depend on Byzantine rules and colorful uniforms and timers and buzzers and whistles. If anything, this makes the illusion more powerful. We have created purpose out of nothing, like God's. Inside the lines, our actions make perfect sense. Some are good and some are bad, and in the end there is a result. Statistics are metaphysical bedrock. It all just depends on our collective will to believe. The Dutch historian Johan Hunziga, in his classic 1938 book, Homo Ludens, which means playing man, argues that civilization itself springs from the urge to play games, that play is the master impulse behind humankind's most sacred behaviors. This is Hunziga. The turf, the tennis court, the chessboard, and the pavement hopscotch cannot formally be distinguished from the temple or the magic circle. The concept of play merges quite naturally with that of holiness. If it ain't Dutch, it ain't much, right, RJ? I'm glad you said it. I was, <laughs> I was holding myself back. <laughs> uh I I will jump in. I absolutely love this. It um, First of all, basketball is one of the few sports I can watch and understand. So I do like basketball a lot, actually. I will watch it with Josh. Um, I think it, it butts up against... It's interesting. It intersects with a lot of the both secular, actually, and sort of church arguments that I hear a lot right now. Um, I was on... You know, I have this great group of women from church that I get to do these phone calls with weekly, like a small group. And, 
you know, one of the women was saying sort of she hasn't gotten involved, you know, politically and or, you know, as much as she feels like she should. And then she also was like, you know, I've been organizing all these food trucks to come out to my neighborhood so that like kids can have popsicles, at, you know, on Fridays at 5 p.m. or whatever. And I was just so kind of like struck by that because it's like you're actually doing really important work for your community, you know, like that you're providing a respite and a break and a place for for people to connect in a safe way. Like you're actually doing really important work. And I think that we have this like we have this tendency to think everybody should be doing the same thing. When in reality, like, people are called to different things. I mean, scripture tells us this, but but people are called to do different things in different ways. So I, I do think that this is beautifully important. But I also think, like, it makes me think of church and how people will say, like, oh, well, the church isn't doing enough and the church should be doing more. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, but the but the end game for church is that we know what God has done for us. And that we hear that over and over again. And whatever comes out of that is is the fruit of the Spirit. But the point is not that the church should be doing more. And so it's just interesting to me to hear this, like, beauty for the sake of beauty. Mm. You know what I mean? In a time when so many things are just ugly. Mm. Um, I really love this. And I did not expect to. When you sent us a sports article, I was like, really, Dave, again? But I like it. <laughs> It made me think about worship and church as play. Mm. Um, And I definitely have that impulse, you know, that I want... Clearly, church, there's there's an element of, of, of seriousness and reverence, and we're talking about things that really matter, that go to the core, we think, of, of who we are as people and, and who God is and, and the nature of the universe. But I, I have this impulse to never want it to be too serious, you know? Um, you know, I, and, and that it makes me nervous sometimes. You know, like one year um, at a contemporary service I was overseeing at Easter, I played a clip from um, MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, because I talked about after the resurrection, like, Sidon couldn't touch us. And I had to cut the YouTube video right before it was just, like, a big butt on the screen, you know? I was like, i got to make sure I don't go too far. <laughs> Um, but I have that impulse, and that's been one of the huge gifts of the last six, seven months to me, is that the pandemic has allowed, I think, a little space for kind of play in worship, mm. you know, and, and and to try different things, to try a drive-in worship service, you know, to try, you know, for our offertory in church, I've been finding YouTube videos, and sometimes they're very reverent, beautiful music from English cathedrals, and uh, two weeks ago, I played this song from this 1970s kind of reggae pop group called The Pioneers called Let Your Yeah Be Yeah, and, and they're all wearing bell bottoms and leisure suits, and it made, it made me nervous. Um, someone showed me um, something someone put on Instagram of their, their parents watching church on YouTube at home, and they said, my, my parents are watching church right now and wondering what is going on, because <laughs> on the screen you could see these three Jamaican men in 1970s polyester leisure suits singing um, Let Your Yeah Be Yeah. Um, but people have received it really well, actually. I think they've been open to that, uh, to this balance of um, reverence and levity, right? Of, of, mm-hmm. of kind of play and and seriousness. And I think that's really important in worship because um, 
I don't want to think about it like a game. But if we do think about it, about it like a game, it, it's almost like we're, you know, we're playing a game that's already been won. Mm-hmm. And there's freedom in that, right? There's, there's, there's joy and, and hope uh, that we can just sort of play the game of life. And that, <laughs> that's ridiculous. And I just said that. But I mean it, right? Play, play the game of life. Um, and there's going to be ups and downs and joys and sorrows and deaths and resurrections. But it's already been won. And so we don't have to take it so deathly seriously yes. because someone has already died. Yes. <laughs> you know, someone has already died and been, and been risen again. What, what reminded me of, so a couple weeks ago, I don't know if I, I forget if I mentioned it on here, but I had the privilege of seeing this movie, Electric Jesus, um, which sort of some friends of Mockingbird have made. It's a gr- great movie. It stars one of the people from The Office. Um, a real motion picture. And um, it's, it's very funny, and it, it's sort of a coming-of-age but affectionate story of a failed Christian rock band in the 80s, which is a very mm. fertile ground for mm. humor, but also Crucifictorious. For, for, for seriousness, though, this is a guy who's like, you know, I, I grew up in that culture, and I, I've never seen it portrayed. Either people are superheroes or they're total hypocrites, and that just wasn't my experience of people in that. And so it's just, anyway, and, and it, it, it while it's very funny and winsome and the music is incredible, it also... Um, it also has got some real poignant moments, especially towards the end. But I was asking them about it, how it's been received so far as they've been showing it to people and especially trying to get it into film festivals. And I said, well, you'll be surprised. Uh, we have, we've yet to be turned down. Everyone is into this movie partly, oh, interesting. partly because so much of the films being made are important, you know, mm. and they're tackling inequality and mm-hmm. racism and, uh, you know, g- apocalyptic feelings. They're all it's statement movies. And he said, all of these film festivals are dying to have something that's kind of fun. <laughs> it's, it's still like comfort food or just, just feel good is the wrong word, but it's something that's more of a playground. And so he's, he said that, that, that they've actually benefited from that. The other thing I thought about, what, Sarah? Well, I would just say, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to correct you, but I think in the way that we're talking about these things, sometimes we feel like we have to apologize, actually, for this stuff in the face of the more serious stuff. And I would actually say we don't like this stuff because it's playful. We like this stuff because it's not going to re-traumatize us. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Frankly. I mean, like... And there's something of the ministry of Jesus <laughs> in it, right? I think of it, it came up in one of the readings, you know, Jesus, why do your disciples not fast and wash their hands, you know? And Jesus being like, you got to feast when, you know, you got to feast when the bridegroom is with you. There is a right. sense of like playfulness yes. and, and living life. Yes. That's part of Jesus' Well, that's ministry. like just as valid. Yeah. Yes. You it's know? just as valid. Like, In fact, if you're really getting into the theological core of it, there's a Nigerian theologian. I think we've mentioned him one time before. His name's Nimi Woriboko. And he wrote a book called The Pentecostal Principle. And in it, this is what he says. He says, grace, by definition, is a genuine gift and not a secretly instrumentalized one. Freely it is given and freely it is received. It has no purpose, no self-addressed envelope from the giver to send something Hmm. in return. It is a pure means of relations between the believer and God. It is play, not because it is trivial and worthless, but because it has no end. It's an unended action. So play is the essential character of spirituality governed by the grace principle rather than the work principle. Jesus said, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And then later we interviewed this theologian for our work and play issue of the magazine a while back. And he said this, he said, when I became a Pentecostal in 1993, I worshiped in a Pentecostal church that was on Victoria Island, the lush upper class area of Lagos in Nigeria. This part of Lagos was also adjacent to a very poor neighborhood, Morocco. So the church was a mixture of the upper echelon and the lowest rung of Nigeria. The poor were in majority. I experienced grace as an eruption of God among people who were perpetually vulnerable to death because of poverty and excess weight of suffering. Yet worship among the poor was a form of play, an explosion of joy, a pure means. Grace was an excess, surplus power beyond the obligations of the law and constricted possibilities of life in Morocco. Isn't that incredible? I just, I, I, I love that. So, I mean, the whole vision of it is so beautiful. And it, you know, it really makes me think about like the people that I'm most comfortable around are the people that take themselves the least seriously. Like, the, you know what I mean? Like the people I just want to be around. And it's because they call me out to take myself less seriously. And that's, there's just so much gospel there for me. Like I can find rest there. Mm. Yeah, grace is is play, sort of bring you back to. I love it. Hey, you're not. Uh, this isn't as serious as you think. Right. You know. Yeah. What is the um, what is that quote from? Is it Chesterton? It says like the the situation is is grave but not serious. Is it something like that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting because I know people may hear this and think like, oh, well, they're not taking you know, whatever cultural issue seriously. And it's like, no, those things, those, I, those things are very serious. But if that is your only reality, if that is your starting point, gosh, you're just going to be exhausted. Like you can't, that, the, so this is speaking personally, if that becomes like my, and I have certainly had certain, you know, seasons in my life where that has been the, you know, the, the, this is all serious and I have to be worried about it kind of mentality. The problem is I then like can't get out of bed to take care of my children in the morning. <laughs> so you got you got you either can take everything seriously and have completely screwed up kids mm. or you can be playful and like be with them, you know? I don't know. I've absolutely found that Sarah like the, the more seriously I take something and think about something the less energy and inspiration yes. I have to actually face it. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, whereas yeah. I'm like, okay, this yeah. is a, this is a thing. Yes, but you know, it's not that important. It's not. I, the I'm thing. not that yeah. important. You know, yeah. and then suddenly you you have some energy to uh, to face it and deal with it. Well, it actually that actually dovetails perfectly into our next series of articles. Um, we've talked about this before. It was a major viral uh, article a couple years ago, but it's become a book. And Helen Peterson, if you don't know that name, remember it. And actually, I could just. Just without qualification, recommend this book that she's written. It's called the the title is "Can't Even: How Millennials <laughs> How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation." Mm-hmm. Now, the opening paragraph of the sort of blurb on the inside of the book is: "Do you feel like your life is an endless to do list? Do you find yourself mindlessly scrolling through Instagram because you're too exhausted to pick up a book?" Are you mired in debt or feel as if you work all the time or feel pressure to take whatever gives you joy and turn it into a monetizable hustle? Welcome to burnout (laughs) culture. Welcome to burnout culture. Now, uh, Peterson has been all over the webs uh, this couple weeks, interviewed everywhere and reviewed. Uh, One of the uh, places she she was interviewed was The Atlantic by Joe Pinsker. 
And uh, this is, he says, he asks her, he says, what connections do you see between how millennials were raised and how burned out many of them are now as adults? This is what she writes. She says, there are two major factors. The first is conceiving of children as many adults, trying to cultivate behaviors, postures, and skills that are associated with adults, like being able to carry on conversations with adults or advocating for themselves when they feel something is unfair. I think we often admire that sort of precociousness without understanding what's lost when you cultivate that in a child. The other component is thinking of childhood as a means to an end. I mean, mm. anti-play. And that that, and that that end is getting into a good college. So instead of viewing childhood as simply childhood, parents are thinking, how can these various experiences, everything from playdates to piano lessons, lead to this larger resume-building path to college? When childhood is treated that, that way, it can eliminate space for the formation of personality, independence, or confidence. Anything not oriented toward that goal of college, things like hobbies, get lost. One of the saddest things I heard when talking to many millennials is that when they reach a point of exhaustion with work, lift their head up and look around them, they're like, what else is there? Do I have a personality? Do I know what I like? There's no there there other than their ability to work, and I think that's really difficult. She goes on, she, he, he says, well, when I read the chapter in your book about millennials' own parenting, it seemed like many of them were doing the same things their own parents did, just more intensely. Peterson responds, yeah, whether it's more activities, more schedules, more supervision, more attention to the specifics of schooling, all of those things just keep going up. It does make sense that now, as millennials have reached adulthood and often have less stability than their parents, they're taking a lot of the same strategies their parents used and just ratcheting them up. <laughs> I don't know what to say. It's so terrifying. <laughs> do you see, do you feel seen in it though? Um, I do feel seen. I mean, my my parents definitely were like. I rem I remember saying to my parents at nine, like, I'm not an adult, and they're like, You're gonna become one. Like, I there was definitely like that drive. I don't. I feel you know. I'm an elder millennial. I don't remember the. I mean, I have friends who experience that kind of like drive and focus towards college and I while college was definitely something I was gonna do it wasn't I mean I know people now who you know it's the violin lessons and the piano lessons and the athletics and all that stuff which leads to the right you know elementary school middle school high school college kind of pattern um I mean I minister to some of those kids at college right like that's that is the reality a lot of young people have been through um and that's hard. I remember being around a, a father of a friend of uh, uh, one of our our son's uh, friend's parents. And the kids were like five. And he was talking about his daughter. And he said, I mean, she says she doesn't want to play soccer anymore. So <laughs> we're just like, you need to pick. Like, pick what your thing is. <laughs> and I was like whoa like I think that was the first time I'd really like seen it like that clearly you know um I do want to say just as a word of grace uh I know that we all feel like our kids need to be back in athletics and maybe it's because my son broke his arm twice in one year also <laughs> but we are just using the pandemic as an excuse to not do anything beyond school this year and it has been amazing <laughs> i highly recommend it i mean you just we we also like were um blessed with this season when hurricane harvey hit we did the same thing we were like you know what we're just gonna take the year off we're and checking out 
It, yeah, it's our jubilee year, basically. But what's and his thing going to be? Really what's his nice. thing going to be, Sarah? What's his thing going to be? I don't know. Right now, it's Pokemon. He's super into that. And That's his thing. We have rules in our house where every third dinner conversation can have nothing to do with Pokemon because otherwise that's all we talk <laughs> that's about. All it's be. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it is wild. Mm. RJ, you guys I, are such chill parents. Like I keep thinking uh, about you and no, like, we're not. You're no, so chill. We're not. Oh my gosh, we might be a little more chill now, having gone through the whole college rigmarole with one kid and just realizing what. I don't know how to how to characterize it. Um, what a sh- what a hollow thing it is. What a shell game it is. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but the article reminded me of a conversation that, for, for whatever reason, still sticks in my mind. It was probably twenty years ago. It was like my what Jamie and I were just married. <clears throat> we didn't have kids. We were at somebody's wedding reception, and it must have been an election year or something because we were talking about the country and the the gap between rich and poor and. You know, all this sort of stuff. And I just remember the guy I was talking to who's about my age was just very matter of fact being like, yeah, that's the way it is. Like, you're either going to do really well or you're going to have a really hard time. And I'm just going to do everything I can to make sure that me and my children are on the right side of that divide. You know? And he did say it in like a bitter way. Just I like sure. this guy in a very matter-of-fact no, so way. He's very though. thoughtful. But that there is that feeling, right? You're either going to do so really well and be successful. You're going to have to work really hard or you're not. And it feels like there's no in between. Now, I, I, you know, I don't feel quite that same level of anxiety, but, you know, we do live in a world where it seems, it seems hard to get along if you don't either have one parent who's fantastically financially successful or or two parents who are both working very hard. I just don't buy that. I think there's a very solid in between. And it is Do you and Josh put that full-time job? It is called (laughs) Ole Miss, honey. And they take everybody and it is affordable. Y'all need to, y'all all need to be thinking about sending your babies to Ole Miss. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I just think they're, that's so stupid. Sorry, but it's like, they're perfectly wonderful, affordable. And I know Texas is not as easy to get in, but you know, you want to look in the Southeastern United States more closely, easy to get into schools um i don't i just don't buy it no i agree with you i don't don't completely buy it either but it feels like that sure and i think that's what that's what this author is 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 writing uh is writing into and am i am i wrong in saying in one of the articles we read does she have children no in fact burnout she decided not to have children because the of the anxiety wrapped up in sort of the idea of having children right which i found to be so sad. sad um i mean the other with regard to just kids and letting them off the hook a little bit i you know jamie has always said with our oldest son you can tell he's doing well because he'll start playing guitar he'll take out his guitar and just start playing it but there were there were months and months on end during his junior and senior year when like he never played his guitar because he was so wrapped up in it and you know with spencer we can't wait for sports to start because as I've said before, you know, he, he has really not made any friends at school yet because we I'm moved sure. and everything's online or socially distanced. So getting into soccer, we're like, please let there be a soccer season so he yeah. can meet some people and make some friends. But he has spent, like, whenever I, I look over it, when he's on his computer and I look over under his shoulder, he's composing music, right? He, he's, he's, in, he's in logic or something like that. And and he won't let me listen to any of it. He lets my youngest brother listen because my youngest <laughs> brother li- lives in Brooklyn and is cool, which drives me nuts. Mm. Uh, but that does give me some Hi, joy that he is that he's making music and 
you know, my, my little one is um, catching crabs <clears throat> and lizards and killing them. Um, so there has been has been some gift in yeah. in play. Yeah, I, I, it's um, I, I just feel like I was raised very much in the kind of performancist East Coast private school thing. Y'all are both yes, East and Coast. full yeah. full. It just produces a lot of really really unhappy people. But yeah. you know, it it also produces a lot of you know uh, high achieving you know interesting folks. I guess too. It's, it's it's not like there's a formula here, but I do I do recognize that when she talks about burnout, I. And I, I know that she's trying to talk about it in terms of millennials. I just recognize it. I just see it everywhere. I feel everyone is kind mm-hmm. of burnt out. And, and the pandemic has has highlighted that for some people. It's also allowed us to realize, to sort of scale back, as you, you mentioned, Sarah. I mean, I, I haven't traveled at all this last six months. And there's been a lot of real benefits to that. I miss it, though. And if given the opportunity, would I would I go back out there? Or, if, you know, probably. Um but so she 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 doesn't just talk about parenting. Thankfully, she she casts a very wide net. And here in she there was a p- portion of the book that was published in Wired, uh, and is about work. And it, she describes work sort of in the digital age in a in a very, um, I don't know, vivid vivid way. Very funny too. <laughs> She says, as work becomes more remote, it's something so many of us think about. How do we demonstrate that we're, quote, in the office when we're in our sweatpants on the couch? I do it by dropping links to articles, to commenting on other people's, to participating in conversations, to show that I'm engaged. I work very hard, in other words, to produce evidence that I'm constantly doing work instead of, well, actually doing work. We're performing, in other words, largely for ourselves, performing work justifying to ourselves that we deserve our job. And that's the reality of the internet-ridden life. I need to be an insanely productive writer and be funny on Slack and post good links on Twitter and keep the house clean and cook a fun new recipe from Pinterest and track my exercise on Map My Run and text my friends to ask questions about their growing children and check in with my mom and grow tomatoes in the backyard and enjoy Montana and Instagram myself enjoying Montana and shower and put on cute clothes for that 30-minute video call with my coworkers and, 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 and. Oh, that's, a, that's a great paragraph. Then she says, but the internet isn't the root cause of our burnout. Its promise to make our lives easier is a profoundly broken one, responsible for the illusion that, quote, doing it all isn't just possible but mandatory. When we fail to do so, we don't blame the broken tools. We blame ourselves. Deep down, we know the primary exacerbator of burnout isn't really email or Instagram or a constant stream of news alerts. It's the continuous failure to reach the impossible expectations we've set for ourselves. Oh, I mean, that is a description of what we, when we say the law is a curse, um, it, or it can be experienced that way, uh, that's, I think, a very apt description of what it feels like, this, this treadmill, and maybe your, your and, and, ands are different than hers, but they're, they're there. And it's that burnout. I mean, for me, this is where the Christian faith has such an enormous natural entree, entree point. And, uh, you know, almost like you have to hide it to, to, to not, not be, be, you know, to, to, you to intentionally turn Christianity into something that's another and, rather than say it's the where you go when the ands have crushed you. And so yeah. I think that this... this the continuous failure to reach the impossible expectations we've set for ourselves, which social media, as we know, makes you feel like you're the only one not meeting. And um, 
this is, a, again, it, we could see it as nothing but negativity, but if it's true that everyone feels crushed by the law of not enough, then it's also true that, um, A, that's a unifying thing in a world where there's very little unity. That's an actually unifying experience among cross-demographics, but it's also a place where we can talk about grace. We talk about Jesus. We can talk about God. We can talk about salvation. We can talk about freedom. We could talk about the Chinese credit system, you know, that we talked about. <laughs> anyway, that's me sort of preaching, but I thought it was a very effective, uh, a very effective description. And I, this book, again, I can't recommend it more, more entirely. I was, on, I was out this morning. I was taking the kids to school, and I came back in my car. And, you know, there's always, like, women, especially out um, walking and running. And there are these two women who are, like, somewhere around my age, and they're just like, really thin and pretty and just so pretty and they were running and which is not a thing I can really do anymore and um or or really have ever wanted to do let's be honest but they were running and they somewhere in my age and there was this group of women who were probably in their 60s who were all walking together and it was a much bigger group like there were two pretty women and then there was like this probably like eight to ten women in their 60s walking and ah, I just and they the women in their 60s look so chill <laughs> like they just they were like enjoying each other and like you know and and it was like didn't really like it didn't look like super athletic walking you know what I mean <laughs> like they, this is like time to just hang out and I was like how do I like how do I how do, I want how to do, go to there <laughs> I know Yes. Like, I was like, how do I get there before I'm there? That's what I want. Yeah. what I need. Yeah. Mm. That's what I want, you know, because it's it's just like this weird, endless like I am as a woman. I mean, I and I'm sure men feel this to a certain extent, too. But I'm like, at what point do I stop seeing photographs of like super sculpted moms on Instagram? And somehow part of my brain is like, I could do that. You know, like at what point will that stop happening to me? Like, I'm ready for that to stop, you know, like, mm. I don't know. There was some article recently that the headline was basically something like, uh, you know, studies show that true happiness begins at age 47. <laughs> or something like everything changes at 47 i'm like please that's only three years away is that true i really hope that's true um just another day but i dave i've been thinking about this a lot personally lately just why am i so hard on myself mm. like why do i seem to be harder on myself than anyone else is mm -hmm. and why why do i have to do everything and why do i have to do it well and you know, is it is it about Jesus? Is it about other people? Is it about God? Or is it just about me? Yeah. Is it just about other people? Me needing to know that other people know that I'm working hard or trying hard or doing my best. Or you know, yes, there's been definitely some playfulness um, with regard to church, but there's also this sense of like, okay, let's just do as much as we possibly can so that when this is over, no one could ever say we didn't try hard. Totally. <laughs> you know? like, totally. Like, yeah. Um, and who knows how many people show up or what ministry will get done or how God will bless it, but at least people will know they did not, he did not take those six months off. Yeah. Right. You know? um, and some of that is wrapped up in like, you know, being in a new job and trying to prove myself. But I, I, I'm pretty sure most pastors out there feel, especially if you're listening to this podcast, like you feel that way too, right? Yeah. yeah. You just, like if, if someone, 
if someone comes up to you and says, "Oh, that must have been a really nice vacation for the past six months," it's like you'll probably you'll you'll you might not kill them, but you'll want to. Well, <laughs> you'll, you'll she, to she actually like, Peterson has spoken with a lot of clergy about this very same thing. Really? But it's interesting yeah. when you're talking, my, my mother was saying that she, she's already sensing the new, um, the new law is definitely, it's already coming out. It's like, it's that question of what did you do with your COVID? Like, yeah. what did you do? <laughs> yeah. Like, how did, how did That's you right. not just maximize it? What did you do? Did you, did you just sit on the couch? Did you just binge TV or did you just kind of muddle through or did you did you lose weight did you um did you write a book did you whatever it is how did your church like you know I, how did you maximize how did you maximize i think the you know, best like answer yesterday. to that is like i didn't get divorced do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. like that's what i did <laughs> i only went on minimal antidepressants right exactly. um, no i got an email like that yesterday from one of these like church consulting firms and they're like so and so church and such and such place you know they completely redid their sanctuary during the pandemic they made good use of this time i'm like well god bless them that they had a couple extra million dollars lying around right. to do that most churches were just trying to like you know pay the bills well right. you know good before grief. we get into the the church angle which is very important here i do want to say that sarah some of the things some of the things you're mentioning it, my, my father's new book about peace in the last third of life he really breaks up the life into into the first third, the second third, and the and the last third, and that we're all the three of us are very much in the second third, second which he said is full yeah. of proving. It's full of activity that mm-hmm. um, feels extremely important at the time, but you look back on when you're when you're older, and what you really only you really it kind of is a blur, uh, partly because you were tired and you and maybe you're proud of some things, but what you're really thinking about is the first third of life and the play you got to do as a kid, or the hurts that you the, the heartbreaks or. or the love that you experienced during that time. And he said his consistent uh, experiences of that, that people in the last third of life are really trying to reconcile the first third of life and almost ignoring the second third. Now, that may be an easy thing to say, but I just want to, I, 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 what I think the, the goal of life is maybe to get to, to, get to a third uh a third third of life, the last third of life state of mind before you actually have to get there uh, logistically. Because that's the time when you're thinking about God, about relationships. No, but it's so true. And the gospel is the only, I mean, I I will say it. I think the gospel is actually the only way you could get there. Like, I mean, that's just like, I don't know what other, I mean, I do all the, the cognitive behavioral therapy, all the meditation, all, I do all that stuff, but, but none of that stuff helps me to rest the way that knowing that death does not have the final word, that my value is not in, you know, my hot mom bod that's never going to happen. You know, like that, I, I find more relief there than I do anyplace else. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about how this actually uh, affects clergy, because this is Peterson to her great credit. Although she doesn't really consider herself a Christian, she clearly has. A, she was brought up in, in, I think, a Presbyterian context and has a lot of affection for it, uh, which is kind of code word just in my mind for sort of saying she's kind of hanging on to it, but waiting to revisit revisit it in the third third of life because <laughs> it's just not fashionable right now. Yeah. But um, this is. Uh, what she wrote a newsletter actually is related to the book saying talking about clergy burnout which is something we've we've danced around quite a bit this is what she, this is her her intro and then i'll read one of the people she interviews when people feel like they need to be working all the time and don't have time for rest let alone a whole sabbath or the wherewithal for a weekly commitment religious attendance goes down 
and the ramifications of dwindling congregations and maintaining existing members while recruiting new ones falls on the clergy. Being a religious leader has never been easy, or for most, lucrative, but when the secular world is exhausting and precarious as it is now, the religious leader, tasked with tending to the spiritual needs of their congregation, is going to absorb it to the point of overflowing. That's enough of a psychological burden to bear. Now imagine doing it while not having health insurance and working a second job and worrying about defaulting on your loans. And now imagine everything that a clergy member was tasked with doing and doing it during a pandemic. A recent survey by the National Association of Evangelicals found that 59% of pastors have no family health insurance. 62% have no retirement fund or plan. Half of the pastors surveyed had a salary and housing package that added up to under $50,000. In 2018, the average total student loan debt for a seminary graduate was $54,600. A survey of Wisconsin clergy, administered in July of 2020, found 10% of all clergy's employment had been threatened as a result of COVID-related ministry decisions, and 25% of clergy had seriously considered retiring or resigning due to the stresses of performing their job during COVID. Now, to get a little closer to our context, Peterson solicited a response from Marcella, who is an Episcopal priest in Connecticut, age 36. Sarah, I hope you feel seen. Um, I do. (laughs) This is what she says. She writes, I'm an assistant rector for youth and family ministries, so I run youth groups, faith formation classes, service trips, intergenerational ministries, outreach projects, chaplain at our preschool, plus all the regular stuff like preaching, leading worship, pastoral care, social justice, etc. The most gratifying part is getting to be a meaningful part of people's lives and getting to be in a community with others in a way that is so deep and powerful and life-giving. The most exhausting is that it's such intense emotional labor, managing boundaries, navigating power dynamics, dealing with all the complicated behavior people bring into the community space, and wearing a million different hats. On any given day, I'm a spiritual leader, therapist, fundraiser, social worker, babysitter, budget specialist, community organizer, communications manager, curriculum designer, teacher, nonprofit administrator. Switching between those different roles wears me out. Then she says, many religious leaders are working 21st century jobs with 20th century skills. We're still getting trained and formed for a version of church life that doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out you're not going to be the rabbi in a Woody Allen movie, folks. (laughs) I only know the smallest handful of clergy who I would consider healthy. Emotionally, spiritually, physically. The idea that following a, quote, calling carries with it this implication of God called you into this life. So you wear yourself out with that narrative, like you don't have agency and can't advocate for yourself in ecclesial systems the way you might be able to in a corporate system. The savior complex is rampant in this field, and there's almost no counter narrative to that way of doing this work. Well, I bet that rang some bells for the two of you. I'm like, I'm ready to name names. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, I mean, there's so much to talk about. I I do think, honestly, though, I think the where she ended, where you ended is is, uh, the real problem in this. I think that we are trained for a very different kind of job. I mean, I... You know, I've probably said this on here before, but like, I think it's like one third of my class at Yale, my Episcopal class at Yale is actually in like church ministry. Um, A lot of people aren't even in ministry at all. Um, I know someone who teaches aerobics now um, Hmm. with a degree from Yale Divinity School Um, because we, we, we aren't trained for this. And 
you know, I have two ways of thinking about it. One, one is they absolutely need to change the training. It absolutely needs to be different. They need to change the process by which you even get into this training because a lot of people shouldn't be there who are and a lot of people aren't there who should be. But the other thing is this is like an impossible expectation. I mean, you're asking someone to be essentially a really high-functioning psychologist right mm -hmm. on some level which none of us have that training and shouldn't have that training because that's actually another field and you get paid more money to do that work mm -hmm. <laughs> um but the savior complex stuff is some bullshit i mean i don't know how i don't know how else to say it's that so I mean, like, prevalent and but i will say it's so prevalent and it's so pushed by like mainline protestantism because it feeds right into this idea i mean you know and everything that that young woman listed off she also was like and social justice and i'm like girl you just listed off 12 jobs you know what i mean like you gotta pick one like they're asking you to do too much but i mean i remember being around an older priest when i was like very young and impressionable uh in new york and just hearing this like story about like there was like an uh, he well, there was like stories about like never got a raise uh, in the 10 years he was there and then like there was like a parishioner who was on heroin and then needed to go on methadone but asked the priest if they'd keep methadone in their fridge at their house for him and he was like oh yeah no problem with kids home and like that's bad like that's not a good president that's not a great way to look at ministry there are like and I, you know i don't like the word boundaries there are there are less than no boundaries there right like <laughs> There's that's a there's a there's a, whatever the anti boundary is that that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, the, just just even the the, the money issue is so like terrifying. I mean, and we've been in those situations financially, where uh, you know, in previous places we've served, where like my parents are sending food to us in the mail. Like it's it, <laughs> seriously, like it's like it's scary to me what some institutions church institutions expect of their clergy and then how little is given in return like it's absolutely terrifying mm -hmm. um which is why we're never leaving where we are <laughs> <laughs> i was speaking with a bunch of clergy recently which was really actually helpful um some people i know well and we were talking about ministry and what it's been like during the pandemic and one of them said something that was really helpful which was you know that hopefully by supporting one another, we can let go of this fantasy that once we have all the right systems in place, um, suddenly ministry is just going to get a whole lot easier. Yeah, um, that was a really helpful thing to say because I think on top of all the the the, the pressures and demands that come with being um, a member of the clergy, the holding on to this idea that like someday things are going to be easier or better or or you know, that someday you're not going to have massive interruptions or, or things are just going to seem, that, that's really not, gonna, that's not necessarily going to happen. And that's, that's okay, right? That ministry is messy because life is, is messy. Um, letting go of this idea that someday everything is just going to be easy. Um, it's helpful to let go of that and, and then maybe just to, you know, live daily or weekly or whatever and, and just try to think, okay, what, what needs to get done today and what can be left until tomorrow yeah well I, th um, I, I think that peterson though is is basically saying that it turns out although it feels like clergy life is completely singular and and its own set of issues the whole book is basically about how 
a lot of people in other, you know, the hustle, the gig, Feel the same the gig economy, yeah. anyone who's working online feels this kind of burnout pressure. I mean, the, you're right. And I think that the different hats that clergy are asked to wear from where I'm sitting is not really, I only, I only play one on TV, but it's, um, the different hats can be super confusing, exhausting, and certainly, um, if if you're if there was a set of expectations that you received either from your childhood or from your seminary, that you are resenting because it hasn't measured up to that at all. The reality, then you're or even from your church, or even, yeah. right? Like when you take these jobs and they're like, we want an excellent preacher and a you know someone who's really good at pastoral care and also a CEO would be preferable if you have some nonprofit experience that would be excellent you know a financial advisor a marriage counselor like and then you get in there and they're like do you know how to fix roofs yeah what do you know about fundraising events in the digital age what right i don't know like, anything like, about that i don't know anything yeah um, i don't know anything well it's a very serious and i think what what she is saying in there is that a lot of the the answer in her book is that people need to help each other and that there, there is yeah. some sort of solidarity, some kind of support group aspect. And, and what she does, I think, in collecting a bunch of different responses, it's not all, it's, it's, there's evangelical clergy, there, like, uh, there's rabbis, there's uh, Catholics. I mean, it's in that little thing I, I, uh, in her newsletter, she's basically saying that um, I think everyone probably felt very seen by even being asked this question. And But when she, when she reached out to millennials more generally about burnout, she said, she was surprised by a the barely contained rage, especially on behalf of young mothers, and secondly, the amount of essays she received in response. Because people have a lot of thoughts about this. This is where they're actually living, and um and 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 I think that it's uh, instructive for those of us who are trying to actually reach these people. I think the other, I mean, what where I would enter into it and where we're about to enter into it is um, when we talk about a low anthropology, we're not talking about something academic. We're talking about the expectations and potentials and possibilities that we believe or uh, of human beings. What do you think human beings are like? And if you have an inflated anthropology, which burnout culture is essentially a, a, a mammoth manifestation of high anthropology. Um, when you talk, when you when you read again, we talked about social dilemma and the social media and the people in Silicon Valley who designed a lot of slack, which basically ensures you'll never stop working. Um, there was a lot of great intention behind this, but there was always this lurking sense that people could um, that efficiency is the most important thing in life, and that people uh, were could handle this. And um, a low anthropology says that actually there are limitations on what is possible and what is mm. good. And that, in fact, mm. there are some places where we need help, where we do need other people, and that to construct, to actually for the sake of charity, for the sake of creativity, for the sake of service, we need to lower our, you know, lower the, the bar, as it were. And if you're constantly being fed a sort of exceptionalism, you're special, you can do this, you've, you're already halfway there, um, it's going to be much, much harder. It's going to set you up for enormous amounts of bitterness, resentment, exhaustion, confusion. Um, and in fact, that's where we kind of get to in this final article, which was fantastic. And I know we're, we're probably going to be in the, in, the, in the realm of... Dave, can I jump in? I have to jump okay, in. Okay, yeah. I know you want to keep talking, no, but no, I have no. to jump in. Because I know people are going to hear this who are lay people. We're not like the preaching podcast. That's the other one. Um, and I know, and I, I know lay people are going to hear this and think like, how, how can I help 
my clergy person? Like, what does this look like? And we've, I really think we've served at two churches that have felt like places that truly loved us. And that is the Mm. place we are right now. And that is a very tiny church, a very tiny church, um, in East Chester, New York called St. Luke's. And I think both of those places were full of people that believed that it was a community effort Mm. and believed that it wasn't just the priest that is carrying everything, but that showed up regularly in our lives to say, you know, how can we help you? How can we love you better? And also how can, how can we love this community better? How can we love it in a different way? So I just, and I say that because the church right now is pretty big. That church was like 25 people on a Sunday, but both of those places were just full of people that, you know, they knew that community was going to be there. They knew it had been there before we got there. They knew it would be there after we left. And they wanted to welcome us into their story. So I just I just wanted to say that, like, l- genuine love and, like, showing up with fruit baskets when a pet dies go a long way for clergy. <laughs> but there, there is something theological about that. If you think that your clergy are basically separate from other Christians, that they're sort of imbued with superpowers, and that the church's idea, like the church exists solely for um, outreach, and um, you were to be these robots, and like you kind of hold yourself above... Like, what is the church going to do? ...above the rest of the world, then you're not going to have um, much uh, love. You just missed the best parts. (laughs) You missed the best parts. Anyway, sorry, Dave, I just had to... No, that's great, because I I don't want it to sound like a griping session. I just know that when we're talking about a lot of suicidal ideation among pastors, and a lot of people... I think think the numbers actually are much higher than that. I I was talking to a person the other day who said that 8 out of 10 people in the ministry surveyed have had considered... Uh, stopping working in ministry over the over the last six months, and uh, yeah. that's not because they got too much free time, my friends. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, also be, I, you know, yeah. Well, I'll say a couple. Of things. It's also because if you're in this work, it's probably because you like people. You yeah. like being around people, and it's been difficult not to be around people. Yeah. Um, and to your point, Sarah, too. I, yeah, I will say, like, one of the, and this has caused me to consider why am I so hard on myself. But one of the great gifts of where I am, which is a wonderful church, is has been the encouraging words. Yes. Has been the, you know, you're, you're, you, 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 you've done so much, you know, yes. you're working so hard. We yes. tried so many different things. Like, thank you. We're so glad you're here. You know, we're so thankful for you. Like that is just like oxygen. Yeah. You know, wor- words of encouragement go such yeah, a It's oxygen for so people who are in other, other situations too. Any, any, and that's right. Any, any kind of, it's just called, lo- it's just called love. Anyway. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Give them a raise by the way. That's the other thing I say. Um, Always, always be thinking well, about. And then the always clergy be thinking. Is to take it is the other thing because I'm constantly hearing about clergy people who aren't taking raises, and I'm yeah, like, okay, exactly. Ugh. That sounds so fun for your wife. <laughs> um, well, this is this is a great, I think, ending note, which is from the yeah. Guardian. I was not expecting this article, though it's similar to something we read a few weeks ago. And uh, the title is "Think Unconscious Bias Training Is a Fad." It's been going on for at least two thousand years. This is by Peter Ormerod. He talks about how some folks are finding this unconscious bias training in England or in various corporate settings um, to be you know, this sort of incursion of leftist, you know, PC gone wild. And he actually, this is what he says, is there's nothing new about it because one institution has been offering its own kind of training in unconscious bias for roughly 2,000 years, the Christian church. The conventional Christian understanding of sin seems to me entirely consistent with ideas about racism that appear to some as modern. 
Christianity asserts that sin is embedded deep in the human condition. Racism is one of its vilest manifestation. There's every reason to expect it to work in us as sin does generally. Christianity understands that sin isn't all about the bad things we consciously do. As various liturgies put it, we sin not just through our own deliberate fault, but also through negligence, through weakness. We have, quote, left undone those things which we ought to have done. One can sin by omission. Which takes us to the idea that people can be unaware or ignorant of their own failings. It's about as orthodox as it gets. According to the Gospels, Jesus spent much of his ministry decrying self-righteousness, attacking those who believed themselves to be untouched by sin. He deployed an array of striking images in his condemnation. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye, he asks? Elsewhere, he calls some of the moral arbiters of the day whitewashed tombs. Further, we are often driven by forces and desires we fail to grasp or fully apprehend. Uh, St. Paul was honest about this. I do not understand my own actions, he wrote, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He went on, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. More of us could do with that self-awareness. We can say we hate racism, we can campaign against it, we can damn others as racist, but that doesn't make us immune to it. Yet there is another story. When Orthodox Christian concepts of sin, justice, and hope come together, we see change. It is surely no surprise that arguably the two most significant anti-racism movements of the 20th century had as key figures men of the church, Martin Luther King and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. There are those who say the church should talk about sin less. I say it should talk about it more. Amen. The bleak, the bleak stuff is a part of it because it is a part of us, but allied to it, are remarkable, life-giving ideas the world needs more of. Repentance, atonement, forgiveness, redemption, salvation. And most radical of all is the conviction that in spite of all our failings, each of us has equal, infinite, and inherent worth, and each of us is loved. Good stuff. Mm, that's the full Monty right there, I think. That's <laughs> it is, yeah, it's so good. Um, I know it's uh, repeating. I, I, I don't want to be so too self-conscious about this, but I, I'm, I'm on the verge of trying to begin a new big new writing project about this very subject and how what the world hears sometimes as defeating news about sin or uh, apathetic understandings of human condition, the, the low anthropology, is actually the doorway to hope and compassion and love and freedom, and all of the things that we say we actually want. Um, it's not the constant harangue of do more, try harder, be the best version of yourself. It's actually come to grips with who you really are uh, in, in the hopes that you might therefore, at that point, be of use to someone else. So, uh, but what do, you, what do you guys think? <laughs> it made me think, I, one thing I did recently is I finished watching The Good Place, have you guys watched all of mm. the Good Place? You know, which is I don't, I haven't finished that. It's pretty amazing. You know, it's the the Ted Danson. Um, oh gosh, what's the female main character's uh, name? Kristen Bell. Kristen Bell. Thank Kristen you. Eleanor uh, Shell Yeah, you know, um, sitcom that's that's basically about heaven and and the nature of existence and morality and and uh, some ways you know <clears throat> profoundly hopeful, and in some ways. Um, not so much, you know, but it, it does deal with this problem of sin. But one thing that I was just struck by was it, it the possibility of forgiveness never entered yeah. the picture. You know, it really? not really, no. It, it was all about our ability to 
improve, to work on ourselves, about to make right ethical choices. And in, and given that this, um, I don't think Sarah's going to finish it now. No, but it, it, it's either. it is worth. It's actually worth. It is worth watching. It's 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 very interesting. I think it. RJ, I do not watch things that are worth. No, watching. but it's also okay. funny and entertaining and 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 good. Is there a drag queen but, in it? Um, then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, these are is my there? They're kind of. They're kind of it. Um, <laughs> but what was I going to say? Uh, and then also in talking about Sorry, work RJ. and play, at the end of the day, what what this show kind of says is that the the object of life is kind of work and self-improvement. And then when, when work comes to an end, oh when work comes to an end, there's almost no reason to, to exist anymore. Dave, is that fair to say about the end I of that show? I think it's slightly, uh, what they, they call it, I, I, I've heard it characterized as a soft nihilism. Yes. And, um, yes. And, uh, maybe with I'm, with maybe a tremendous humor and, and, and warmth. Case, but... I feel like I'm not breathing. <laughs> <laughs> but... The the I kept on waiting for some, for I just want to be like, but but forgiveness, but yes, like yes, you got you you you've sort of nailed the human condition, but the whole idea of as as this article says, truth telling, truth telling, yes, but confession, repentance, forgiveness, right? Maybe the only solution at the end of the day is just having your record expunged. Um, and not holding on to this fantasy that through multiple billions of years, I'm, I'm, I'm finally going to improve to the, to the point where I'm, I'm fundamentally different than I am now. So um, I, mm. I, anyway, I found this – it was very hopeful to see this article in The Guardian and to talk about, um, you know, as we, as we walk through this difficult moment around the social upheaval – you know, it's a profoundly Christian thing to acknowledge that sin is something you don't have control over, and that's part of who you are, and to just come clean about it in light of the forgiveness that we are offered in Jesus. Mm. So amazing to see this in The Guardian. Yeah, I just think there's so much relief here. Um, I mean, that, that's always like the message of, of this message for me is like that I can, that I can find some rest in... Uh, and acknowledging that I'm a sinner and acknowledging that I need forgiveness. It is interesting to me, though, like how much of an aggressive pushback there is, especially, I'll be honest, in these major mainline denominations that are wanting to talk about racism, right? They're wanting to fix racism, but they're not really wanting to talk about personal sin. They'll talk about like, corporate sin they'll talk about community sin especially if it's not their community but like talking about like the personal sin of racism um the person and maybe they maybe they will talk about it but they won't land on forgiveness do you know what i mean like that's not that actually is not a part of the deal like you just get to feel like a really guilty white person Oh, there's nothing else. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, like, that's like that's like it. And and uh, and oh, by the way, like that actually won't make you useful in solving the problem of racism. But but that's okay, right? Because like you get to feel like all your personal guilt and sin. I don't know. It's just interesting to me. There's no then like movement it's a, it's a classic um, left right thing where the right loves to talk about personal sin but really has a hard time with collective sin and and the and the and the left wants to talk about collective sin but really has a hard time talking about personal sin and it's like yeah. why can't we say both i mean collectives are made up of persons but neither one wants to talk about uncontrollable sin 
Neither yeah. one wants oh, to talk 100%. about sin as being something 100%. that you don't have a choice about or that you can't act yes. your way out of. Like that's what binds yes. it all together. Is right. Like don't don't yes. tell me I can't get my act together. Right. Like yeah. yeah. Right. And that you're still you're right. still somehow culpable for. That's the that's the conundrum because because basically if if we're only forgiven for the things that. Um, that we're conscious of, that, mm-hmm. then, then, then we're we're kind of screwed. The, the great radical message of forgiveness is that you're, you're, you're not only uh, forgiven for the stuff that you consciously do, but the things that you're, you know, that are out of your control, the stuff that you wish you didn't do but still do. Known and, and that's, unknown, done and left undone. Yeah, and these are this is very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. I mean, it, it's I, who I, I don't want to talk about that sort of stuff, especially like when you when you start when you when you want to be honest enough to say that you enjoy a lot of the wrongdoing, you know, that you um, and that you benefit from the systems, but you also you know, <laughs> I was watching my little son yesterday. He he had one of those days where he like stole an eraser from a girl in his class and then lied to us about <laughs> drinking a diet coke. And Hell you were yes. just like, gosh, this is a crash course. And in uh, he was he was enjoying he was enjoying these things like deeply enjoying them, and yet afterwards we're like, son, you can't. Th- those are those are those are just in case you're wondering. You may have felt overpowered by the urge to do that in both those cases, but you still need to you know apologize and and figure it out, yeah. and not be completely because his his response was like, I'm the worst person in the world, or oh, I just fall gosh. apart instead that. of like. Said, yeah. I sort of wish he would say, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I was like, stop lying. But um, In our house, we just say, ooh, your brain's giving you bad ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, here, I, was, I, I did the Dorothy Martin thing. It's like, you, you, you might, I think you need some help making good decisions today. Um, <laughs> oh, that's so much better than what I say. Uh, and don't go anywhere near that caffeine or else daddy's not going <laughs> to be able to watch his I show. I mean, it does... It does make me think of like what RJ was saying earlier about like being hard on himself. But I mean, I kind of love everything in this episode because I think there's something about play and even like humor about ourselves um, that gives us access to mercy and forgiveness and the knowledge that like we're going to fail at things and like we actually can rest in that truth. You know, like I think there's something really beautiful about like I've started talking to my dog a lot more. Um <laughs> she's the only one that's she's the only one that's home um and i'll just like i'll do something dumb and i'll be like wow that was kind of silly like to the dog and it's i don't know it there's something really beautiful about that that's you Um, know i was so i was deeply encouraged this week because mockingbird has a new devotional coming out and it's we've put it's been two years in the making rj's in there sarah's in there i've contributed a lot but there's like 70 people that have contributed this Mm. thing and so i sent emails out to about you know 15 people who i knew would would, who could get back to me fairly quickly uh asking will you put together a little video just saying that people should buy the devotional and like just hype it and just it's fun it's just see what happens every single person sent back something hilarious i was like or or something clever or something i was like the play that ever i was i didn't tell them to and every single reaction was one that was uh, sillier than the next and i was forwarding these to our video guy and he's like these are amazing did you tell people to be wacky i said no because if you tell people to be wacky yeah. they're like oh no i gotta be wacky that's that's the right. least wacky thing in the world but um i thought gosh maybe maybe it is worth <laughs> buying our devotional if this is the fruit that this message is producing with I these mean, people it's, <laughs> it's freedom in the gospel i'm serious y'all it is it freedom in the gospel and play in the gospel is the most serious 
serious thing in the world. It really is. It ruffles feathers in ways you would not expect. It gives you oxygen. I mean, it's just like the, it's the, you know, it's my drug of choice. Yeah, wait till you see Sarah, wait till you see the one Sarah submitted. <laughs> I mean, get ready. It's uh, that, by the way, th- this is a good place to close as any, but that should, that announcement awesome. should be up any second. And um, so stay right. tuned to the, mo- oh, not yours, but the, the, the pre-orders for this devotional. Okay. It, uh, I got to brace myself for that. It's, it's funny. Guys, thank you both for playing. Because I I, 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 feel like this podcast is always at its best when we're feeling playful. Um, yeah. Which means when RJ's had enough sleep. So. Yeah. That's all. That's that is what it depends upon. So. <laughs> um. All right. Well, go forth. Talk play. to you soon. Have okay. a good week. You too. Bye, friends. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.